Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to earth scientist Dr. Anjana Katwa about fossils. This episode was recorded in February this year over Zoom, me from London and Angina from her home in Dorset. We spoke the day after the owners of the Lulworth estate in Dorset urged the government to educate the quote-unquote younger and more geographically and culturally diverse cohort from urban areas ahead of lockdown easing. Before I hit record on this episode, Angina was telling me about how exhausting her day had been um, because she'd been trying to rally the troops for a counter letter calling out this just blatant bigotry um, and you'll hear us refer to this um, later on in the conversation so that's what we're referring to there but on a lighter note I started by asking Angina what exactly is a fossil materially speaking a fossil is the preserved remains of a trace or a process or even a creature that existed hundreds of millions of years ago. And what's really interesting about fossils is they fall into two categories. Uh, bod- you can get body fossils. So I'm holding one in my hand and this is like a bullet shaped fossil. It's called a belemnite. And it's the preserved remains of the body of a creature called a belemnite very similar to a squid that we would see in the oceans today and it it really is remarkable to think you're holding the body of a creature that lived 200 million years ago in the Jurassic Seas so that's our first type of fossil a body fossil the second types of fossils that we get are trace fossils and these are the remnants of processes um, that are literally kind of preserved in the rock record and some of the best examples of this are dinosaur fossil footprints and it's also remarkable you know just just near my home about half an hour from where I live you can go to a quarry and you can literally walk in the footsteps of sauropods which are which is remarkable Mm. um you know these creatures were the size of double-decker buses they were huge if you can imagine a diplodocus have I said that properly diplodocus (laughs) you're literally stepping in the footprints of these um creatures that lived hundreds of millions of years ago. So how did they form? Well, 
I'm going to take you back 200 million years ago to life under the ocean waves, but this is not your kind of <laughs> happy bedtime story. <laughs> this, is a, this is a time period of an ocean dominated by uh, terrifying marine reptiles like ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs. And within this ocean, you get to see these spiral-shaped creatures like ammonites, now, inside that shell, so just to give you some idea of a modern day equivalent, that would be the Nautilus that we'd see in our tropical oceans today. Back in the Jurassic, they were called ammonites. And these spiral shaped, shaped creatures had a hard shell. And inside that hard shell um, was a very soft body with tentacles that would have popped out of the end of the shell, which is what it would have used to feed. It had an eye. Um, you have to imagine that this creature was swimming about in the oceans uh, looking for food, but it was also food for other animals. So imagine that our poor ammonite had a chunk taken out of it by an ichthyosaur, for example. Um, its body would have sunk to the bottom of the seabed. And over time, scavengers would come along and eat those soft body parts or those soft body parts might have rotted away. That shell would have laying on the bottom of the seabed and gradually it become covered in layers and layers of silt and clay. When we're talking about quite large depths of water, particularly in ocean settings, the currents um, are quite slow at deep, deeper levels, if you like. So finer grain sediments like silts and clays can really slowly settle out and our poor, ichthy, uh, sorry, our poor ammonite shell would have been covered in layers of silt and clay. Over time, that shell would have been buried under layers and layers of rock. And that shell is quite interesting because it would have been made out of a mineral called calcite. And over time, the minerals in the rock would have replaced the minerals in the shell. So literally, the body of this creature would be turned into stone. And in my hand, what I've got is something really rather special. It's a spiral shell oh, it's so of cute. an ammonite. <laughs> it's very cute. It, it measures about uh, one and a half centimetres across, but it's beautifully preserved. You can see the ribs on its shell, and, it, and it's just got this beautiful spiral shape. If I gave it a bit of a polish, and I'm just doing that with my thumb, it kind of shines, it glistens in the light. And, and it's glistening because it's made out of iron pyrites. Now, as a material scientist, you can probably tell me a lot more about that. But as a geologist, I'm going to tell you that the shell of the creature has been replaced by that mineral, by the iron pyrites. And when we go to beaches, for example, on the, on the Dorset coast or even the Yorkshire coast, these small kind of remnants these relics of the past i've washed out of the cliffs for us to find today and that's what i find so magical about fossils really that you can find them today anyone can find them anyone you just need to use your eyes i mean the professionals obviously use hammers um, to break open those rocks to find them in the middle but i think for most members of the public i think you have to rely on natural processes to do the work for you and literally, you will just find them on the beach, nestled in the sand, if you're lucky enough, ready to pick up and take home. So here's a question for an earth scientist then. Um, you know, in material science, the, the materials that we work with are quite kind of short-lived, I suppose. Like the longest 
existing man-made material would have been made at the beginning of the Bronze Age, right? 5,000 years ago. That's like the oldest kind of material that we would work with. And it always blows my mind to chat to earth scientists because the types of timescales that you're working with are just completely unimaginable to me. So is there a way that you find it easiest to think about these kinds of, you know, millions, billions of years timescales? How do you get your head around it? question actually because I was doing a piece of work a couple of weeks ago and I had to talk about the oldest fossil in the world and the oldest fossil in the world is 3.5 billion years old okay. I mean that just that <laughs> blows my mind actually um, and it's a microscopic organism a bit like you know cyanobacteria that we have today I think the way as earth scientists we um we get around that because what we're able to do is we're able to build that narrative of deep time with imagining what the environments were like. And I think if you if you want to get into a career like earth science, you've got to have an imagination. And I think as long as you can imagine past environments, then you're able to time travel. Does that make sense? It's, yeah. it's quite magical, isn't it? When you think about it, it can be like a Doctor Who in your mind. But you've got to time travel back to just think that three and a half billion years ago, the, the, the planet was covered in vast oceans, huge waves, you know. And, and, it's, and it's, it's a bit of a stretch for most people, but it's a skill that you begin to hone because the more fossils that you find, the more grounded you become in mm. the reality of understanding those clues looking towards our contemporary environments in the world today and you can experience that obviously you can go to a desert and you can go and stand on a glacier or you can go scuba diving in the ocean but it's that ability to translate modern day experiences in our environments and then use the clues in the rocks you put those together and then you're traveling through time amazing so time travel through imagination then (laughs) That's it, pretty much. That, that's what you need. <laughs> so we talked Forget about. <laughs> so we talked about the the materials of fossils. Um, what What's interesting to me is how you describe this amazing transformation process between you know a living organism through time becoming kind of fossilized and mineralized and becoming from kind of organic matter into stone so what kind of materials properties do you look for in fossils or what kind of characterizes a fossil in terms of their properties well it's interesting you say that because when you when you are fossil hunting or looking for where you might find fossil evidence you're immediately going to rocks that record depositional environments where those creatures or animals or plants would have lived and those are necessarily sedimentary rocks and sedimentary rocks vary hugely in terms of their texture and their strengths and their abilities really to withstand erosion weathering and and all sorts of natural processes I mean I'm holding one in my hand right now in fact this one's a little bit better this is a beautiful piece of oh, wow. uh, ammonite. And that must have been huge. <laughs> with a, I know it's it's. I, I'll, I'll just describe it. Um, it's a grey piece of limestone, and it has a little bit of white on it, which is I think it's kind of like calcite uh, staining. Um, but this was this is part of an ammonite. It's called a wall, and if I spell that for you, W H O R L. So it's a wall of an ammonite. Um, 
and it's incredibly tough. Mm. I mean, that is solid limestone. It's actually quite heavy as well, but you can see it's quite fractured. It's quite broken. Mm. And so limestone in itself is, is, is quite a resistant rock, but ultimately it's quite brittle. So when this ammonite, when I found it on the beach, and this is from Chapman's Pool in Dorset, I think I found it, it kind of nestled in some clay and I had to kind of pick it out of a, of a mudslide. But um, the limestone itself is quite brittle. So as the waves come in and they erode those rocks, these ammonites kind of fall out in fragments because naturally over time, where the rocks have changed and they've been uplifted, um, so they are now on the surface of the land because obviously this ammonite was swimming in, in deep water and those sediments were buried. Naturally, they would have experienced some kind of movement as those rocks were shifted around over time. But, but the limestone itself is an incredibly resistant, heavy rock. And what's really lovely is as a material, you can see the preservation of structures of that creature within the rock itself. So I don't know if you can see it, but there are these wiggly lines just here. Oh, yeah. They are called the sutia lines. And they've been preserved in the body of the ammonite. They're almost like um, growth, growth rings on the tree, if you think of it like that. But they are the growth structures on within the ammonite shell. And they've all been preserved in this particular example. So it it's it's quite an interesting material, limestone itself. And um if you know anything about limestone, you'll know it reacts with acid as well. Mm -hmm. So it, it can chemically weather in the natural environment as well. Some other kind of fossils you tend to find, um, let's have a look at this one here. This is a very, very beautiful one. If I show you it from the other side, you'll see it's like a creamy mm -hmm. brown color. And it's actually in a, in a kind of honeycomb sandstone, if you like. Mm. But if I turn it around, that's oh my god wow like. yeah so so sometimes we get ammonites and this, this is a lovely ammonite fossil it measures about oh I don't know 40 centimeters in in diameter um and what it is what we're looking at is it's been sliced in half so we can actually see inside the body of the ammonite itself so so we can see the chambers of the fossil where the creature would have breathed air in and out a bit like an aqualung on on, on your back if you're going scuba diving but what's really interesting about this particular specimen is that you can see, um, hopefully you can see here, um, and I'll describe it for the listeners, is you can see uh, crystallised calcite mm. within the chambers themselves. Yeah. So what's happened in this particular example is that water containing the calcite has seeped into those empty chambers of the fossil and then eventually, obviously, the, the liquid has precipitated out the mineral and that's what's left behind. So you've got this beautiful kind of sparkly crystalline structure inside the fossil itself. And, and that just tells us a different story about how it died, how it formed on the bottom of the seabed. And it's and it's all part of that storytelling, mm. which I love. You, know, you can get all of that just from looking at a piece of rock. Amazing. So you're a forensic scientist as well as a geoscientist. <laughs> wow. Yes. Okay, go on then. I'll add another half on the end. So you mentioned earlier that you, um, you know, dug some of these fossils out of, um, you know, mudslides in Dorset and all this sort of stuff. It'd be great to hear kind of what processes you have to go through to look after these relics from the past. You know, what are the tools that you need? What kind of preservation do they require? How does all of that work? So 
I um, obviously am not a professional fossil collector. And the fossil that I found, um, I was uh, on a beach where it was where it was safe enough and the, the mudslide had kind of come away from the edge of the cliffs and I was able to pick it up as I walked walk past. Um, fossil collectors do um, go to places where they can easily find fossils and usually that's in a quarry or on a coastline. Um, now, if I come back to the coastline and the Jurassic Coast in particular, because this is where I have the most experience of working and talking to fossil collectors, um, what they tend to do is they go out after a big storm because oh, okay. what we need, yeah, what we need are the waves and the winds to come in and really take great big chunks out of the cliffs, which then washes boulders containing those fossils out onto the beaches for the collectors to find. Right. Okay. What's really important here is if the collectors didn't go out along those beaches looking for those fossil rich rocks, the, the waves would come along and just smash up the rocks and wash, wash those fossils, fossils out to sea. So it's a really important part of the scientific process that we have a community of fossil collectors out there hunting for fossils and then getting them back to their, their fossil preparation workshops. And that's where the exciting part begins. So just imagine you're walking out along that beach after a big storm and you see a kind of interesting nodule of grey limestone and it's it's a certain shape so you can kind of get a feel that there's something interesting inside and usually what the fossil collectors are looking for is something that's a bit like an egg shape okay um, am i giving away too many secrets here <laughs> <laughs> they call them what do they call them the woodstone nodules or something like okay. that that comes from a specific sequence of rocks called the blue lias but you're looking for grey limestones that tend to have an egg shape because that gives you an indication that there's something like a, an ammonite inside. You get that back to your workshop. And where I've worked with different collectors over the years, they have all sorts of different tools to begin to um, gradually take the matrix. So this is the surrounding limestone um, that covers that fossil that's literally buried it in, in stone. What you use is you use air pens and use very, very small, delicate chisels to gradually take that matrix away. And then once you get down to um, the, the structure of the fossil itself, you then use the air pen to generally gently abrade that limestone away and you have to be incredibly gentle and you have to have an extraordinary amount of patience because I've I've talked to so many fossil collectors and they've said oh yes you know I kind of went, kept going with my air pen because I thought this was you know a, a piece of whatever you right. know not in not an important part of the fossil fossil yeah. and what they've done is that they've abraded something away and they've realized oops that was this bit that would have told me about you know x mm. y and z so it's an incredibly detailed process that requires huge scientific knowledge about the specimen that you're uncovering but it also requires uh, a huge amount of experience and knowledge also about the period that that fossil belongs to because if it's an ammonite and it was you know you know it was found at the bottom you know it died and fell to the bottom of the seabed you know that there's going to be a story in that surrounding rock and it, you've got to be so careful as you remove it mm. to uncover the specimen itself. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Can you share maybe one or two of your sort of favorite stories about fossils? Either your own or, you know, or kind of in the field, the legendary ones in the field. (laughs) I think one of my favourite ones is, um, yes, this is from Richard Edmonds. And I used to work with Richard Edmonds when I was at the Jurassic Coast team. And he was the earth science manager for the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site. And he was walking along the beaches over at Dulston, which is on the eastern end of the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site. He used to go out regularly checking on that the rocks were okay as he said that they were they were doing their thing <laughs> that the coast was still there and I remember getting a phone call one afternoon and he said Angela you won't believe this but I have spotted the croc a crocodile skull and I said what are you talking about Richard and he said I'm over at Dalston and I'm walking past they're called the broken beds and and literally uh, a big boulder of rock had fallen had detached itself fallen onto the beach and where it had come away from the rock in the cliff he could see the cross section of a skull now Richard uh, Edmonds is probably one of the most experienced fossil collectors on the Jurassic coast and he immediately knew looking at the cross section that it was a goniophilus which is a very ancient type of crocodile he knew just by looking at the cross section that it was this crocodile skull incredible so what he did was obviously this boulder was huge so he managed to get it off the beach and 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 back somewhere where he could begin to uh, prepare it and 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 have a look at it in detail but what he also had to do was he also had to remove the rest of the skull which was still in the cliffs now in order to do that you have to apply for permissions from the landowner and and get signed you know get all those permissions in place because actually it's illegal to take fossils directly out of the cliffs. You're not allowed to do that. Oh, right. Yeah, they are protected. Yeah. Um, so you have to get special permission to do that, which he did. So they managed to extract, and I, I remember this being done. It was a huge effort, Herculean effort. They managed to get the rest of the uh, skull out of the cliffs. And then what was really magical was that as he started to look at it in detail it was very very clear that this was a special specimen and so the the fossil in its two bits was sent over to Bristol University their paleontology department and the paleontologist there started to prepare it and remove the matrix 
And actually what they found was it was a new species to science. What? And yes, it was remarkable. I think he was delighted. That's amazing. And, um, yeah, it was remarkable. And and what what's really lovely about this particular specimen is he called it after Rud- Rudyard Kipling, I think. Oh, yeah. I think it's a Goniophilus Kipling eye. <laughs> <laughs> But it's lovely. I mean, the specimen itself is about a metre long, I think. The skull is about a metre long. And there's a really lovely part of the skull where you can see that the crocodile had a tooth abscess. There's a slight kind of... Yeah, I know, it's amazing. That's amazing. Um, There's a slight kind of depression in its jaw. And and that indicated to the paleontologists who were preparing the specimen that that goniophilus, that ancient crocodile, had a hell of a toothache when he died. Incredible. (laughs) Just the best story. And how how old was that crocodile? Did they think? I well, it dates back to the late Jurassic, so we're talking about 160 million years ago, and it would have existed in these kind of really murky, dense, swampy jungles. Um, and at that time, you know, dinosaurs would have been walking around at the same time as well. So it would have been quite a formidable beast. And we're at, you know, you would have measured how long? Probably about, I don't know, two metres long, three yeah. metres long yeah, in total. Yeah. So quite formidable. Madness. Don't get those in Dorset anymore, do you? No, we well, do get, yeah. Old Some other kind here of dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> like we were talking about before we hit play. I know. Yeah, there's plenty of those around. <laughs> Um, so it's quite. It kind of strikes me that um, obviously the story that you just told was of a professional fossil hunter finding fossils, and you're a professional as well. But you know these are scientific and historical objects that are just there for anyone to find. You know I've been to Lyme Regis, I've found an ammonite in my in my time, um, and it's a very it's a very engaging and um, accessible thing to do. Right, like anyone can go and do it. Um, is there quite a long lineage, I suppose, particularly in Dorset or the UK, of, of people, you know, amateur fossil hunters going out and finding these amazing finds? Yeah, the history of fossil collecting goes back, I mean, hundreds of years. I mean, I'm thinking that even back to the, you know, the Middle Ages, we're talking the 600s, people mm. were finding fossils even then but they didn't understand what they were. Right. And what was really fascinating about people at that time was they thought they were, you know, really these strange mysteries of nature, these curiosities. And if you um, Google snake stones, and it will take you to the Natural History Museum website where you can look at some pictures of snake stones, these were ammonites where people in the Middle Ages carved snakes' heads into the fossil itself and they were like these these kind of mysterious charms that were you know that that were used in society to ward off evil a bit like the evil eye so even back then people were finding fossils and they they had this mystery attached to them of course if we fast forward through history a couple of hundred years we come to the most famous fossil collector of all time and that is Mary Anning and you know if you walk along those beaches in Lyme Regis and Charmouth today, you're walking in her footsteps. And I, I find that extraordinary because, you know, you can find, as you did, you can find those ammonites on the beaches and the fragments of belemnites. And this is pretty much what she was finding 200 years ago. So that legacy is is so strong and it's so visceral when you're there uh, on those beaches you can really yeah. imagine her with her sweeping skirts combing <laughs> those beaches looking for her next ichthyosaur totally that's a really interesting point actually that we take for granted today that 
you know, most people believe in evolution and that as a scientific process that has <laughs> happened. Um, we take for granted that we understand how these fossils fit into the kind of the lineage of life as it has been on Earth for all these millions of years. But before the theories of evolution really took off, you know, these objects must have been unknown and mysterious and you know steeped in sort of superstition and all that kind of stuff so that's uh, that's another element of fossils that I've never really kind of considered before was what did people think they were before we knew what they were yeah and it and it is something that that mystified people they they didn't know what they were I mean you can imagine Mary Anning uncovering the uh, skull of an ichthyosaur and 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 for listeners, if they go to the Natural History Museum, once it's open again, of course, and you go to the Waterhouse Gallery, you can see her fossil collection displayed there. And it is absolutely stunning when you think a young woman, you know, coming from poverty, uneducated, really. She taught herself how to a find those fossils and she taught herself the science behind what they were. And. I just find it remarkable that, you know, she was able to, um, you know, understand their importance at that time, their scientific importance, and basically begin to write papers and, and ideas about what they might mean for, uh, for for our natural history. And it and it just so happened that one of her best friends was Henry de la Beach. And again, if you um, have a look on the internet for a watercolour painting called the Duria Antiquior, which is held by the National Museum of Wales, Henry de la Beach painted this caricature of um, what life was like during the Jurassic period. So, of course, we know about movies like Jurassic Park these <laughs> yeah. days. Well, in the 1800s, Henry de la Beach <laughs> did it first, I'm afraid. Because he painted this beautiful watercolour uh, painting of these crazy creatures yeah. based on the fossils that Mary Anning was finding. Right. And, it, and, it, and it's a brilliant kind of example of the very first representation of what the world might have looked like hundreds of millions of years mm. ago. And, and it's a brilliant picture because there's one particular part of the watercolour where you see an ichthyosaur biting through the neck of a plesiosaur and the plesiosaur's droppings are coming out of it the other end. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> well, yeah, he was, I mean, Henry de la Beach was, um, I mean, he has a very complex history, uh, you know, in terms of a complex and controversial history okay. because he, he, he came from a family that owned a plantation in the Caribbean. So he was, he, he benefited from mm. the transatlantic slave trade. So he was one of those Victorian gentlemen sure. that benefited from the transatlantic slave trade, which allowed him to explore pursuits like you know collecting fossils and, yeah. and helping Mary Annie with her work as mm. well so we, we must be mindful of that history but as a person who supported Mary Annie yes he did that but he, he had a twinkle in his eye when it came to talking about science if you go to the Lyme Regis Museum you'll see that one of the artifacts that they have is 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 a table which is inlaid with fish coprolites so for your listeners who don't know what a coprolite is a coprolite is fossilized feces mm -hmm. fossilized poo mm -hmm. <laughs> 
So what he did was he, he got these fossilised pieces of fish poo, sliced them in half into, into thin layers, yeah. and then laid it into the top of the tea table, put glass over it, and then would serve <laughs> tea and coffee for his guests off it and thought that was a marvellous joke. <laughs> I mean, that's one way of communicating science. <laughs> Absolutely. A good use of materials, I would imagine. You know, why not? Would we use that on a kitchen countertop today? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> quite sturdy rock. That's true. That's true. From a materials properties perspective, it's probably great. Absolutely. <laughs> so this kind of leads me on to the, the final question, which is to ask you about what you think fossils can tell us about ourselves, because... There are some people who would say, you know, these these are extinct creatures, you know, um, sure, they have sort of academic interest, you know, uh, sort of for us to be able to understand where we've come from. But what can it tell us about kind of where we are today and where our place in the world? Can it can it teach us anything about, you know, how we should think about our place in the world and perhaps the world going forward as well? I think fossils have the ability of helping us to understand how nature adapts and recovers, especially when we are talking about catastrophic changes. And over the history of the Earth, and we're talking, you know, 4.6 billion years, there have been several mass extinctions. And one in particular, I think, is really rather interesting. This is a Permo-Triassic extinction that happened goodness me, let me just get my numbers right. When we were talking about numbers, uh, this happened about 250 million years ago. So the Permian-Triassic extinction was when, uh, well, Great Britain, if we refer, refer to that particular landscape, it was a desert. And at that particular period in time, 95% of life was wiped out um, at, that, at that particular point in history. And so what's really fascinating, I remember looking at a thin section of two rocks, one just before the mass extinction and then one after. And the scientist that I was talking to at the time said, it's amazing, Angela, here in this particular rock, there is, it's teeming with life. It is full of life. In the next rock, it, there's nothing. And I think what that tells us, because obviously we're here today, we're talking to each other. What that tells us is life finds a way to adapt and survive. Now, the question that we're coming to is, of course, we're talking about hundreds and millions, if not billions of years of history for life to find a way to adapt and survive. And, and I think fossils tell us this, you know, where during the Jurassic sea levels were rising and falling, climates were changing, you know, temperatures were rising and falling all the time, particularly when we get into the Ice Age or Quaternary period. Nature had time to respond to those changes. Animals could adapt. Environments slowly changed. It, it, it all had time to, you know, to evolve. Now where we are, we've seen extraordinary changes um, over the last, what, 140 years, you know, since the Industrial Revolution. What we're finding now is that life is struggling to adapt quickly enough to the changes in the climate, to the changes in the environment, because we are forcing those changes to happen at an unnatural rate. So where we can look at fossils, what they're telling us is if we slow that process of change down, nature will find its own way and it will adapt and it will survive. If we continue as we are and we let um, 
temperatures keep rising at the rate they are, if we keep decimating our natural environment, if we keep um, forcing species into smaller and smaller and more challenging uh, kind of areas of existence, they simply cannot respond to those changes quick enough. They simply cannot evolve fast enough to change to what we're doing. And I think that is the greatest lesson that fossils can tell us is we need to be mindful of our impact on the natural environment. We need to look at whether we can adapt our practices and our approaches to really address the climate emergency. Of course, climate change is a natural process. We're never going to stop that. It always annoys me when people say, you have to stop climate change because you can't. Mm. What you can do is you can adapt your behaviour to influence how fast that change is happening. And I think that is the greatest lesson that fossils can tell us. I think that's a very thought-provoking place for us to end. Um, If people have been inspired by what you've been saying today um, and want to go and have a look at their own fossils or find out more, are there any good either physical places or um, sort of resources that you can recommend for listeners to go and check this stuff out? Well, the Natural History Museum would be your first port of call. They have a phenomenal uh, kind of collection of fossils in the museum in London but their website is a brilliant uh, kind of area to explore so digitally at this time that's a really good place to go if you are very lucky enough (laughs) at some point to visit the Jurassic Coast there are there are a couple of places where you can see quite extraordinary collections of fossils firstly the Etches collection which is in Kimmeridge houses one of the best collections in the world of fossils from the Kimmeridgean period Steve Etches, who is an extraordinary fossil collector, you will have a chance to see him in action and look at him preparing fossils in his lab and even have a chance to talk to the great man. That's a great museum to go to. If you want to go out and look for your own fossils, the Charmouth Heritage Coast Centre in Charmouth run guided fossil walks and they would be very happy to take you out on the beaches and show you what to look for so you can become your own expert. And of course... The Lyme Regis Museum, uh, which is a very special place that I, I've just done some films there actually over, over last year on YouTube. You can actually go there and literally stand on the place where Mary Anning's house used to be and you can walk the beaches that, that she went on to look for fossils. So those would be my recommendations. Amazing. And if people have enjoyed hearing from you, what are your kind of links online? How can people look you up and see what you're up to? Well, I'm active on all social media channels. So that would be Twitter and Instagram particularly. And you can look me up as Jurassic Girl, but you need to replace the I with a one because the other Jurassic Girl had already gone. (laughs) Who is she? I know. I think she's a lady in the States and she keeps getting nobbled by people that want to talk to me. (laughs) Brilliant. And what sort of content do you put up there? Are you sort of regularly posting about your fossily adventures? I am. I have a YouTube channel as well, and that's under Dr. Angela Katwa. And there are a couple of playlists that you can explore. There's one in particular with my eight, now nine-year-old daughter, where we are creating content, particularly for children uh, in Key Stage 2, so year three and four, where they're studying rocks and fossils. Uh, We're out there and we're talking about rocks and fossils for that particular age group. I have Where on Earth Do You Live, which is a series I created in lockdown to help people explore rocks under their feet. Nice. Um, and I I work as a presenter as well. So I'll, I'll be on um, a programme which is in the UK on Sunday um, and it's called ITV's Love Your Weekend and I'll be talking about fossil collecting 
then as well. So you can find me on the internet in some way, shape or form. And (laughs) the content I tend to talk about, particularly on my Twitter channel, um, is about how to engage people with nature. That's what I'm really passionate Mm. about. And I will often take very nice pictures of fossils that I find and see on the beaches when I'm out and about because that's my hobby. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me today. It's been fascinating to talk to you and very thought-provoking as well. (laughs) Great stuff. Thank you so much. So that was the fabulous Angina Katwar. I hope you're feeling suitably inspired to go fossil hunting yourselves or at least watch the much-anticipated movie about Mary Anning called Ammonite, which I'm reliably informed by the internet is out in the UK in April. That's everything for this episode. As always, it'd be awesome if you could like and subscribe to us so you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to support us with a one-time donation, you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. Thanks so much to everyone who has already done so. It really does help to keep us going. You can say hi on social media. We're on Twitter at RealTalk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, and on Instagram at HandmadePod. Huge thanks as always to Dave Shepard for our awesome cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next week, I'll be talking to artist Gemma Gunning about printmaking and abandoned buildings. So until then, take very good care and I'll talk to you next time on Handmade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.